This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 1, Chapter 10. Can such things be, and overcome us like a summer's cloud, without our special wonder? Macbeth On the next morning Emily ordered a fire to be lighted in the stove of the chamber where Saint-Aubert used to sleep, and as soon as she had breakfasted went thither to burn the papers. Having fastened the door to prevent interruption, she opened the closet where they were concealed. As she entered which, she felt an emotion of unusual awe, and stood for some moments surveying it, trembling, and almost afraid to remove the board. There was a great chair in one corner of the closet, and opposite to it stood the table at which she had seen her father sit on the evening that preceded his departure looking over with so much emotion what she believed to be these very papers. The solitary life which Emily had led of late, and the melancholy subjects on which she had suffered her thoughts to dwell, had rendered her at times sensible to the thick-coming fancies of a mind greatly enervated. It was lamentable that her excellent understanding should have yielded, even for a moment, to the reveries of superstition, or rather to those starts of imagination which deceive the senses into what can be called nothing less than momentary madness. Instances of this temporary failure of mind had more than once occurred since her return home, particularly when, Wandering through this lonely mansion in the evening twilight, she had been alarmed by appearances which would have been unseen in her more cheerful days. To this infirm state of her nerves may be attributed what she imagined when, her eyes glancing a second time on the armchair which stood in an obscure part of the closet, the countenance of her dead father appeared there. Emily stood fixed for a moment to the floor, after which she left the closet. Her spirits, however, soon returned. She reproached herself with the weakness of thus suffering interruption in an act of serious importance, and again opened the door. By the directions which Saint-Aubert had given her, she readily found the board he had described in an opposite corner of the closet, near the window. She distinguished also the line he had mentioned, and, pressing it as he had bade her, it slid down and disclosed the bundle of papers, together with some scattered ones, and the purse of Louis. With a trembling hand she removed them, replaced the board, paused a moment, and was rising from the floor, when, on looking up, there appeared to her alarmed fancy the same countenance in the chair. The illusion, 
another instance of the unhappy effect which solitude and grief had gradually produced upon her mind, subdued her spirits. She rushed forward into the chamber, and sunk almost senseless into a chair. Returning reason soon overcame the dreadful but pitiable attack of imagination, and she turned to the papers, though still with so little recollection, that her eyes involuntarily settled on the writing of some loose sheets which lay open, and she was unconscious that she was transgressing her father's strict injunction, till a sentence of dreadful import awakened her attention and her memory together. She hastily put the papers from her, but the words, which had roused equally her curiosity and terror, she could not dismiss from her thoughts. So powerfully had they affected her, that she even could not resolve to destroy the papers immediately, and the more she dwelt on the circumstance, the more it inflamed her imagination. Urged by the most forcible, and apparently the most necessary curiosity to inquire farther concerning the terrible and mysterious subject to which she had seen an allusion, she began to lament her promise to destroy the papers. For a moment she even doubted whether it could justly be obeyed, in contradiction to such reasons as there appeared to be for further information. But the delusion was momentary. I have given a solemn promise, said she, to observe a solemn injunction, and it is not my business to argue, but to obey. Let me hasten to remove the temptation that would destroy my innocence and embitter my life with the consciousness of irremediable guilt, while I have strength to reject it. Thus reanimated with a sense of her duty, she completed the triumph of her integrity over temptation more forcible than any she had ever known, and consigned the papers to the flames. Her eyes watched them as they slowly consumed. She shuddered at the recollection of the sentence she had just seen, and at the certainty that the only opportunity of explaining it was then passing away for ever. It was long after this that she recollected the purse, and as she was depositing it, unopened in a cabinet, perceiving that it contained something of a size larger than coin, she examined it. His hand deposited them here, said she, as she kissed some pieces of the coin and wetted them with her tears. His hand, which is now dust. At the bottom of the purse was a small packet, having taken out which, and unfolded paper after paper, she found to be an ivory case, containing the miniature of a lady. She started. The same, said she, my father wept over. On examining the countenance, she could recollect no person that it resembled. It was of uncommon beauty and was characterized by an expression of sweetness, shaded with sorrow, and tempered by resignation. Saint-Aubert had given no directions concerning this picture, nor had even named it. 
She, therefore, thought herself justified in preserving it. More than once, remembering his manner when he had spoken of the Marchioness of Villeroy, she felt inclined to believe that this was her resemblance. Yet there appeared no reason why he should have preserved a picture of that lady, or, having preserved it, why he should lament over it in a manner so striking and affecting as she had witnessed on the night preceding his departure. Emily still gazed on the countenance, examining its features, but she knew not where to detect the charm that captivated her attention and inspired sentiments of such love and pity. Dark brown hair played carelessly along the open forehead. The nose was rather inclined to aquiline. The lips spoke in a smile, but it was a melancholy one. The eyes were blue and were directed upwards with an expression of peculiar meekness, while the soft cloud of the brow spoke of the fine sensibility of the temper. Emily was roused from the musing mood into which the picture had thrown her by the closing of the garden gate, and on turning her eyes to the window she saw Valancourt coming towards the chateau. Her spirits, agitated by the subjects that had lately occupied her mind, she felt unprepared to see him, and remained a few moments in the chamber to recover herself. When she met him in the parlour, she was struck with the change that appeared in his air and countenance since they had parted in Roussillon, which twilight and the distress she suffered on the preceding evening had prevented her from observing. But dejection and languor disappeared for a moment in the smile that now enlightened his countenance on perceiving her. "'You see,' said he, "'I have availed myself of the permission with which you honoured me, "'of bidding you farewell, whom I had the happiness of meeting only yesterday.' Emily smiled faintly, and anxious to say something, "'asked if he had been long in Gascony. "'A few days only,' replied Valancourt, "'while a blush passed over his cheek. "'I engaged in a long ramble "'after I had the misfortune of parting with the friends "'who had made my wanderings among the Pyrenees so delightful. "'A tear came to Emily's eye as Valancourt said this, "'which he observed, "'and, anxious to draw off her attention "'from the remembrance that had occasioned it, "'as well as shocked at his own thoughtlessness,' He began to speak on other subjects, expressing his admiration of the chateau and its prospects. Emily, who felt somewhat embarrassed how to support a conversation, was glad of such an opportunity to continue it on indifferent topics. They walked down to the terrace where Valancourt was charmed with the river scenery and the views over the opposite shores of Guienne. As he leaned on the wall of the terrace, watching the rapid current of the noble Garonne, I was, a few weeks ago, said he, at the source of this noble river. I had not then the happiness of knowing you, or I should have regretted your absence. It was a scene so exactly suited to your taste. 
it rises in a part of the Pyrenees still wilder and more sublime, I think, than any we passed in the way to Roussillon. He then described its fall among the precipices of the mountains, where its waters, augmented by the streams that descend from the snowy summits around, rush into the Vallée d'Aron, between whose romantic heights it foams along, pursuing its way to the northwest, till it emerges upon the plains of Languedoc. Then, washing the walls of Toulouse, and turning again to the northwest, it assumes a milder character, as it fertilizes the pastures of Gascony and Guienne in its progress to the Bay of Biscay. Emily and Valancourt talked of the scenes they had passed along the Pyrenean Alps, as he spoke of which there was often a tremulous tenderness in his voice, and sometimes he expatiated on them with all the fire of genius, sometimes would appear scarcely conscious of the topic, though he continued to speak. This subject recalled forcibly to Emily the idea of her father, whose image appeared in every landscape which Valancourt particularized, whose remarks dwelt upon her memory, and whose enthusiasm still glowed in her heart. Her silence at length reminded Valancourt how nearly his conversation approached to the occasion of her grief, and he changed the subject, though for one scarcely less affecting to Emily. When he admired the grandeur of the plane-tree that spread its wide branches over the terrace, and under whose shade they now sat, she remembered how often she had sat thus with Saint-Aubert, and heard him express the same admiration. "'This was a favourite tree with my dear father,' said she. "'He used to love to sit under its foliage with his family about him, "'in the fine evenings of summer.' "'Valancourt understood her feelings, and was silent. "'Had she raised her eyes from the ground, she would have seen tears in his. "'He rose and leaned on the wall of the terrace, "'from which, in a few moments, he returned to his seat.' then rose again, and appeared to be greatly agitated, while Emily found her spirits so much depressed that several of her attempts to renew the conversation were ineffectual. Valancourt again sat down, but was still silent and trembled. At length, he said, with a hesitating voice, "'This lovely scene! I am going to leave, to leave you, perhaps for ever. These moments may never return. I cannot resolve to neglect, though I scarcely dare to avail myself of them. Let me, however, without offending the delicacy of your sorrow, venture to declare the admiration I must always feel of your goodness. Oh, that at some future period I might be permitted to call it love! Emily's emotion would not suffer her to reply, and Valancourt, who now ventured to look up, observing her countenance change, expected to see her faint, and made an involuntary effort to support her, which recalled Emily to a sense of her situation, and to an exertion of her spirits. 
Valancourt did not appear to notice her indisposition, but when he spoke again his voice told the tenderest love. "'I will not presume,' he added, "'to intrude this subject longer upon your attention at this time, "'but I may perhaps be permitted to mention "'that these parting moments would lose much of their bitterness "'if I might be allowed to hope the declaration I have made "'would not exclude me from your presence in future.' "'Emily made another effort to overcome the confusion of her thoughts and to speak.' She feared to trust the preference her heart acknowledged towards Valancourt, and to give him any encouragement for hope on so short an acquaintance. For though in this narrow period she had observed much that was admirable in his taste and disposition, and though these observations had been sanctioned by the opinion of her father, they were not sufficient testimonies of his general worth to determine her upon a subject so infinitely important to her future happiness as that which now solicited her attention. Yet, though the thought of dismissing Valancourt was so very painful to her that she could scarcely endure to pause upon it, the consciousness of this made her fear the partiality of her judgment and hesitate still more to encourage that suit for which her own heart too tenderly pleaded. The family of Valancourt, if not his circumstances, had been known to her father, and known to be unexceptionable. Of his circumstances, Valancourt himself hinted as far as delicacy would permit, when he said he had at present little else to offer but a heart that adored her. He had solicited only for a distant hope, and she could not resolve to forbid, though she scarcely dared to permit it. At length she acquired courage to say that she must think herself honoured by the good opinion of any person whom her father had esteemed. "'And was I then thought worthy of his esteem?' said Valancourt, in a voice trembling with anxiety. Then, checking himself, he added, "'But pardon the question,' I scarcely know what to say, if I might dare to hope that you think me not unworthy such honour, and might be permitted sometimes to inquire after your health, I should now leave you with comparative tranquillity. Emily, after a moment's silence, said, I will be ingenuous with you, for I know you will understand and allow for my situation. You will consider it as a proof of my my esteem that I am so. Though I live here in what was my father's house, I live here alone. I have, alas, no longer a parent, a parent whose presence might sanction your visits. It is unnecessary for me to point out the impropriety of my receiving them. Nor will I affect to be insensible of this, replied Valancourt, adding mournfully, but what is to console me for my candour? I distress you, and would now leave the subject, if I might carry with me a hope of being some time permitted to renew it, of being allowed to make myself known to your family. Emily was again confused, and again hesitated what to reply. She felt most acutely the difficulty, 
the forlornness of her situation, which did not allow her a single relative or friend to whom she could turn for even a look that might support and guide her in the present embarrassing circumstances. Madame Cheron, who was her only relative, and ought to have been this friend, was either occupied by her own amusements, or so resentful of the reluctance her niece had shown to quit La Vallée, that she seemed totally to have abandoned her. "'Ah, I see,' said Valancourt, after a long pause, during which Emily had begun, and left unfinished, two or three sentences. "'I see that I have nothing to hope. My fears were too just. You think me unworthy of your esteem.' that fatal journey which I considered as the happiest period of my life. Those delightful days were to embitter all my future ones. How often have I looked back to them with hope and fear, yet never till this moment could I prevail with myself to regret their enchanting influence. His voice faltered, and he abruptly quitted his seat and walked on the terrace, there was an expression of despair on his countenance that affected Emily. The pleadings of her heart overcame, in some degree, her extreme timidity, and when he resumed his seat, she said, in an accent that betrayed her tenderness, "'You do both yourself and me injustice when you say I think you unworthy of my esteem. I will acknowledge that you have long possessed it, and—' And Valancourt waited impatiently for the conclusion of the sentence, but the words died on her lips. Her eyes, however, reflected all the emotions of her heart. Valancourt passed in an instant from the impatience of despair to that of joy and tenderness. Oh, Emily, he exclaimed, my own Emily, teach me to sustain this moment. Let me seal it as the most sacred of my life. He pressed her hand to his lips. It was cold and trembling, and raising her eyes, he saw the paleness of her countenance. Tears came to her relief, and Valancourt watched in anxious silence over her. In a few moments she recovered herself, and smiling faintly through her tears said, can you excuse this weakness? My spirits have not yet, I believe, recovered from the shock they lately received. I cannot excuse myself, said Valancourt, but I will forbear to renew the subject which may have contributed to agitate them, now that I can leave you with the sweet certainty of possessing your esteem. Then, forgetting his resolution, he again spoke of himself. "'You know not,' said he, "'the many anxious hours I have passed near you lately, "'when you believed me, "'if indeed you honoured me with a thought, far away. "'I have wandered near the chateau "'in the still hours of the night, "'when no eye could observe me. "'It was delightful to know I was so near you, "'and there was something particularly soothing in the thought,' that I watched round your habitation while you slept. These grounds are not entirely new to me. Once I ventured within the fence, and spent one of the happiest 
and yet most melancholy hours of my life in walking under what I believed to be your window. Emily inquired how long Valancourt had been in the neighbourhood. Several days, he replied. It was my design to avail myself of the permission Monsieur Saint-Aubert had given me. I scarcely know how to account for it, but though I anxiously wished to do this, my resolution always failed when the moment approached, and I constantly deferred my visit. I lodged in a village at some distance, and wandered with my dogs among the scenes of this charming country, wishing continually to meet you, yet not daring to visit you. Having thus continued to converse, without perceiving the flight of time, Valancourt at length seemed to recollect himself. "'I must go,' said he mournfully, "'but it is with the hope of seeing you again, "'of being permitted to pay my respects to your family. "'Let me hear this hope confirmed by your voice. "'My family will be happy to see any friend of my dear father,' said Emily. "'Valancourt kissed her hand, and still lingered, unable to depart, "'while Emily sat silently with her eyes bent on the ground.' and Valancourt, as he gazed on her, considered that it would soon be impossible for him to recall, even to his memory, the exact resemblance of the beautiful countenance he then beheld. At this moment a hasty footstep approached from behind the plane-tree, and, turning her eyes, Emily saw Madame Chéron. She felt a blush steal upon her cheek, and her frame trembled with the emotion of her mind, but she instantly rose to meet her visitor. "'So, niece,' said Madame Chéron, casting a look of surprise and inquiry on Valancourt, "'so, niece, how do you do? But I need not ask. Your looks tell me you have already recovered your loss.' "'My looks do me injustice, then, madame.' "'My loss, I know, can never be recovered.' "'Well, well, I will not argue with you. "'I see you have exactly your father's disposition. "'And let me tell you, it would have been much happier for him, poor man, "'if it had been a different one.' "'A look of dignified displeasure with which Emily regarded Madame Chéron while she spoke "'would have touched almost any other heart.' She made no other reply, but introduced Valancourt, who could scarcely stifle the resentment he felt, and whose bow Madame Chéron returned with a slight curtsy and a look of supercilious examination. After a few moments he took leave of Emily, in a manner that hastily expressed his pain, both at his own departure and at leaving her to the society of Madame Chéron. "'Who is that young man?' said her aunt, in an accent which equally implied inquisitiveness and censure. "'Some idle admirer of yours, I suppose. But I believed, niece, you had a greater sense of propriety than to have received the visits of any young man in your present unfriended situation. "'Let me tell you, the world will observe these things, and it will talk. I, and very freely, too.' Emily, 
extremely shocked at this coarse speech, attempted to interrupt it, but Madame Cheron would proceed, with all the self-importance of a person to whom power is new. It is very necessary you should be under the eye of some person more able to guide you than yourself. I, indeed, have not much leisure for such a task. However, since your poor father made it his last request that I should overlook your conduct, I must even take you under my care. But this let me tell you, niece, that unless you will determine to be very conformable to my direction, I shall not trouble myself longer about you. Emily made no attempt to interrupt Madame Cheron a second time. Grief and the pride of conscious innocence kept her silent, till her aunt said, I am now come to take you with me to Toulouse. I am sorry to find that your poor father died, after all, in such indifferent circumstances. However, I shall take you home with me. Ah, poor man, he was always more generous than provident, or he would not have left his daughter dependent on his relations. Nor has he done so, I hope, madam, said Emily calmly nor did his pecuniary misfortunes arise from that noble generosity which always distinguished him. The affairs of Monsieur de Motteville may, I trust, yet be settled without deeply injuring his creditors, and in the meantime I should be very happy to remain at La Vallée. No doubt you would, replied Madame Cheron, with a smile of irony, and I shall no doubt consent to this, since I see how necessary tranquillity and retirement are to restore your spirits. I did not think you capable of such duplicity, niece, when you pleaded this excuse for remaining here. I foolishly believed it to be a just one, nor expected to have found you with so agreeable a companion as this Monsieur Laval—I forget his name— Emily could no longer endure these cruel indignities. "'It was a just one, madam,' said she, "'and now, indeed, I feel more than ever the value of the retirement I then solicited, and, if the purport of your visit is only to add insult to the sorrows of your brother's child, she could well have spared it.' "'I see that I have undertaken a very troublesome task,' said Madame Cheron, colouring highly. "'I am sure, madam,' said Emily mildly, and endeavouring to restrain her tears, "'I am sure my father did not mean it should be such. "'I have the happiness to reflect that my conduct under his eye was such that he often delighted to approve.' It would be very painful to me to disobey the sister of such a parent, and if you believe the task will really be so troublesome, I must lament that it is yours. Well, niece, fine speaking signifies little. I am willing, in consideration of my poor brother, to overlook the impropriety of your late conduct, and to try what your future will be. Emily interrupted her, 
to beg she would explain what was the impropriety she alluded to. What impropriety? Why, that of receiving the visits of a lover unknown to your family, replied Madame Cheron, not considering the impropriety of which she herself had been guilty in exposing her niece to the possibility of conduct so erroneous. A faint blush passed over Emily's countenance. Pride and anxiety struggled in her breast, and, till she recollected that appearances did in some degree justify her aunt's suspicions, she could not resolve to humble herself so far as to enter into the defence of a conduct which had been so innocent and undesigning on her part. She mentioned the manner of Valancourt's introduction to her father, the circumstances of his receiving the pistol-shot, and of their afterwards travelling together, with the accidental way in which she had met him on the preceding evening. She owned he had declared a partiality for her, and that he had asked permission to address her family. "'And who is this young adventurer, pray?' said Madame Cheron. "'And what are his pretensions?' "'These he must himself explain, madam,' replied Emily. "'Of his family my father was not ignorant, "'and I believe it is unexceptionable.' "'She then proceeded to mention what she knew concerning it. "'Oh, then this, it seems, is a younger brother,' exclaimed her aunt, "'and, of course, a beggar. "'A very fine tale, indeed.' "'And so my brother took a fancy to this young man "'after only a few days' acquaintance. "'But that was so like him. "'In his youth he was always taking these likes and dislikes "'when no other person saw any reason for them at all. "'Nay, indeed, I have often thought the people he disapproved "'were much more agreeable than those he admired. "'But there is no accounting for tastes.' He was always so much influenced by people's countenances. Now I, for my part, have no notion of this. It is all ridiculous enthusiasm. What has a man's face to do with his character? Can a man of good character help having a disagreeable face? Which last sentence Madame Cheron delivered with the decisive air of a person who congratulates herself on having made a grand discovery and believes the question to be unanswerably settled. Emily, desirous of concluding the conversation, inquired if her aunt would accept some refreshment, and Madame Cheron accompanied her to the chateau, but without desisting from a topic which she discussed with so much complacency to herself and severity to her niece. "'I am sorry to perceive, niece,' said she, in allusion to somewhat that Emily had said concerning physiognomy, "'that you have a great many of your father's prejudices, and among them those sudden predilections for people from their looks. I can perceive that you imagine yourself to be violently in love with this young adventurer after an acquaintance of only a few days.' There was something, too, so charmingly romantic in the manner of your meeting. Emily checked the tears that trembled in her eyes while she said, "'When my conduct shall deserve this severity, madam, 
you will do well to exercise it. Till then, justice, if not tenderness, should surely restrain it. I have never willingly offended you. Now I have lost my parents. You are the only person to whom I can look for kindness. Let me not lament more than ever the loss of such parents. The last words were almost stifled by her emotions, and she burst into tears. Remembering the delicacy and the tenderness of Saint Aubert, the happy, happy days she had passed in these scenes, and contrasting them with the coarse and unfeeling behaviour of Madame Cheron, and from the future hours of mortification she must submit to in her presence, a degree of grief seized her that almost reached despair. Madame Cheron, more offended by the reproof which Emily's words conveyed than touched by the sorrow they expressed, said nothing that might soften her grief. But, notwithstanding her apparent reluctance to receive her niece, she desired her company. The love of sway was her ruling passion, and she knew it would be highly gratified by taking into her house a young orphan who had no appeal from her decisions, and on whom she could exercise, without control, the capricious humour of the moment. On entering the chateau, Madame Cheron expressed a desire that she would put up what she thought necessary to take to Toulouse, as she meant to set off immediately. Emily now tried to persuade her to defer the journey, at least till the next day, and, at length, with much difficulty, prevailed. The day passed in the exercise of petty tyranny on the part of Madame Cheron, and in mournful regret and melancholy anticipation on that of Emily, who, when her aunt retired to her apartment for the night, went to take leave of every other room in this, her dear native home, which she was now quitting, for she knew not how long, and for a world to which she was wholly a stranger. She could not conquer a presentiment, which frequently occurred to her this night, that she should never more return to La Vallée, Having passed a considerable time in what had been her father's study, having selected some of his favourite authors to put up with her clothes, and shed many tears as she wiped the dust from their covers, she seated herself in his chair before the reading-desk, and sat lost in melancholy reflection, till Teresa, opening the door to examine, as was her custom before she went to bed, if was all safe. She started on observing her young lady, who bade her come in, and then gave her some directions for keeping the chateau in readiness for her reception at all times. "'Alas, a day that you should leave it,' said Teresa. "'I think you would be happier here than where you are going, if one may judge.' Emily made no reply to this remark. The sorrow Teresa proceeded to express at her departure affected her, 
but she found some comfort in the simple affection of this poor old servant, to whom she gave such directions as might best conduce to her comfort during her own absence. Having dismissed Teresa to bed, Emily wandered through every lonely apartment of the chateau, lingering long in what had been her father's bedroom, indulging melancholy, yet not unpleasing emotions, and having often returned within the door to take another look at it, she withdrew to her own chamber. From her window she gazed upon the garden below, shone faintly by the moon, rising over the tops of the palm-trees, and at length the calm beauty of the night increased a desire of indulging the mournful sweetness of bidding farewell to the beloved shades of her childhood till she was tempted to descend. Throwing over her the light veil in which she usually walked, she silently passed into the garden, and, hastening towards the distant groves, was glad to breathe once more the air of liberty, and to sigh unobserved. The deep repose of the scene, the rich scents that floated on the breeze, the grandeur of the wide horizon, and of the clear blue arch, soothed and gradually elevated her mind to that sublime complacency which renders the vexations of this world so insignificant and mean in our eyes that we wonder they have had power for a moment to disturb us. Emily forgot Madame Charon and all the circumstances of her conduct while her thoughts ascended to the contemplation of those unnumbered worlds that lie scattered in the depths of ether, thousands of them hid from human eyes and almost beyond the flight of human fancy. As her imagination soared through the regions of space and aspired to that great first cause which pervades and governs all being, the idea of her father scarcely ever left her, but it was a pleasing idea, since she resigned him to God in the full confidence of a pure and holy faith. She pursued her way through the groves to the terrace, often pausing as memory awakened the pang of affection, and as reason anticipated the exile into which she was going. And now the moon was high over the woods, touching their summits with yellow light, and darting between the foliage long level beams, while on the rapid garonne below the trembling radiance was faintly obscured by the lightest vapour. Emily long watched the playing luster, listened to the soothing murmur of the current, and the yet lighter sounds of the air as it stirred at intervals the lofty palm-trees. "'How delightful is the sweet breath of these groves,' said she. "'This lovely scene! How often shall I remember 
and regret it when I am far away. Alas, what events may occur before I see it again? O oh, peaceful, happy shades, scenes of my infant delights, of parental tenderness now lost for ever, why must I leave ye? In your retreats I should still find safety and repose. Sweet hours of my childhood, I am now to leave even your last memorials. No objects that would revive your impressions will remain for me. Then, drying her tears and looking up, her thoughts rose again to the sublime subject she had contemplated. The same divine complacency stole over her heart, and hushing its throbs, inspired hope and confidence and resignation to the will of the deity whose works filled her mind with adoration. Emily gazed long on the plane tree, and then seated herself, for the last time, on the bench under its shade, where she had so often sat with her parents, and where, only a few hours before, she had conversed with Valancourt, at the remembrance of whom, thus revived, a mingled sense of esteem, tenderness, and anxiety rose in her breast. With this remembrance occurred a recollection of his late confession, that he had often wandered near her habitation in the night, having even passed the boundary of the garden, and it immediately occurred to her that he might be at this moment in the grounds. The fear of meeting him, particularly after the declaration he had made, and of incurring a censure which her aunt might so reasonably bestow, if it was known that she was met by her lover at this hour, made her instantly leave her beloved plane-tree and walk towards the chateau. She cast an anxious eye around, and often stopped for a moment to examine the shadowy scene before she ventured to proceed. But she passed on without perceiving any person, till, having reached a clump of almond-trees not far from the house, she rested to take a retrospect of the garden and to sigh forth another adieu. As her eyes wandered over the landscape, she thought she perceived a person emerge from the groves, and pass slowly along a moonlight alley that led between them. But the distance, and the imperfect light, would not suffer her to judge with any degree of certainty whether this was fancy or reality. She continued to gaze for some time on the spot, till on the dead stillness of the air she heard a sudden sound, and in the next instant fancied she distinguished footsteps near her. Wasting not another moment in conjecture, she hurried to the chateau, and having reached it, retired to her chamber, where, as she closed her window, she looked upon the garden, and then again thought she distinguished a figure gliding between the almond-trees she had just left. She immediately withdrew from the casement, and, though much agitated, 
sought in sleep the refreshment of a short oblivion. End of Volume 1, Chapter 10